0: On June 8th, an 11-year-old girl named Mia Cerrillo from Uvalde, Texas, gave video testimony to the United States Congress. Wearing glasses and a T-shirt emblazoned with sunflowers, Mia described the moment a teenage gunman walked into Robb Elementary School and killed 19 children and two teachers. There's a door
1: between our classrooms, and he went to there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head. And then he shot some of my classmates.
0: In order to save herself, Mia explained to the members of Congress, she smeared herself with the blood of her murdered classmate and played dead.
1: When I went to the back, uh, he shot my friend that was next to me. And I thought he was going to come back to the room. So I grabbed the blood and... I put it all on me. What did you do then when you put the vote on yourself? Just stay
0: quiet and then I got my teacher's phone and called When asked if she thought a shooting could happen again, Mia nodded her head. For those gathered on Capitol Hill, listening to such a horrifying account of a mass shooting is a tragically common occurrence, as is political inertia. Even though more than 900 school shootings have taken place in the past decade, Congress has failed to pass any legislation that would curb gun violence. But that might change. Last week, the Senate reached a bipartisan gun reform agreement that, if passed into law, could be the most significant in 30 years. This is The Economist Asks. I'm John Fassman, in for Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, will America finally pass gun control legislation? My guest is the senator who led the negotiations for Democrats, Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's been fighting for stricter gun laws since 2012, when another gunman killed 20 schoolchildren and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School, in the district he represented when he was in the House. He shouldered the anger and anguish of the community, and when he joined the Senate in 2013, his maiden speech was a rousing call for change.
1: In this country, he's just gotten so callously used to gun violence, that it's just raindrops. It's just background noise. And that reality, the one in which we are losing 30 Americans a day to gun violence, in which a chart that shows you how many have died since December 14th is almost unreadable because it's a cast of thousands, that reality is just as unacceptable as what happened in Sandy Hook that day.
0: But the stream of tragedies since Sandy Hook were not enough to persuade Murphy's colleagues to act. After Uvalde, Murphy feared that Congress would once again do nothing. He took to the Senate floor and pleaded.
1: —Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in the classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority, if your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing.
0: At last, the senator managed to harness momentum and achieve a rare feat in a divided Congress. He and John Cornyn, his Republican colleague from Texas, have assembled a bipartisan group of senators to support legislation that, at the time we recorded this interview, is planned to include enhanced background checks for gun buyers under 21, Funding for states to implement red flag laws, which let police temporarily take guns from people who are a danger to themselves or others, a ban on buying weapons for anyone convicted of domestic violence, funding for mental health treatment, and a federal ban on gun trafficking and straw purchases. While the agreement is certainly a breakthrough, it's not yet law. Senator Murphy joined me on Wednesday afternoon during a brief break from writing the actual bill to discuss what happens next. Senator Chris Murphy, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. Senator, you've spent a decade trying to pass gun control legislation, and in that time you've seen negotiations falter and proposals get defeated, and now you've struck this agreement that could be the most important federal gun legislation in 30 years. How significant is it, really, and why has it been so difficult to get anything done in such a long time?
1: It's significant because it is the breakthrough moment. We have broken this nearly 30-year-long logjam on anti-gun violence legislation. And we're going to do it with a bill that is significant, right? This is not window dressing. This isn't just checking a box. This is a bill that is going to save lives, help states pass red flag laws, which take guns away from people who are threatening suicide or threatening to kill others. We're creating new federal laws against gun trafficking that are going to help try to stem the flow of illegal guns into our cities. We're protecting domestic abuse victims by making sure that domestic abusers can't buy guns. It's a pretty substantial bill. And it also includes billions in mental health spending to fix a very broken mental health system. So it's a significant moment, not just because the bill is going to make this country safer, but also because it's a watershed moment in which we now are asking the question, How much more can we do to stem the tide of gun violence in this country rather than asking the question, will we ever do anything to stem the tide of gun violence in this country? I'd like to talk about why this is a watershed moment. I remember
0: Sandy Hook very clearly. My son's were then quite young. Like every parent, I was horrified. And a bipartisan bill afterward that would have just introduced background checks failed in the Senate, and it felt like nothing was going to get
1: done. What is different about this time? What's driving the momentum? Well, I think you have to understand that Washington really doesn't ever have epiphany moments where there's one status quo, a moment happens and that status quo is upended overnight. I know it was difficult for a lot of people to understand why we couldn't pass common sense gun law changes after Sandy Hook, but the anti-gun violence movement just didn't exist in 2013. And the gun lobby was at their zenith, was as strong as they had ever been. And so what we've done over the last 10 years is build up the anti-gun violence movement so that we have thousands and thousands of supporters, of activists, of people who are on the phones. That has made a difference, right, 10 years into that movement. Second, I just think there was something very emotionally cataclysmic about Buffalo and Uvalde happening together at the same time. I just have never seen the level of fear and anxiety from parents and kids that I saw back in Connecticut over the past three weeks. I think it you know, is not coincidental to having to deal with the tragedy of the pandemic for two straight years to then have to think that as your kids have finally gotten back into school, they are now not safe there either. There was a demand to do something that was stronger than any demand I had seen in the past. That combined with the strength of the movement, I think allowed us to be able to get a conversation going that had not happened in the past. And so given
0: That demand, given the moment with Buffalo and Uvalde happening so close to each other, and knowing that gun reform has failed many times over, what was your strategy going to negotiate at this time? Was it different?
1: It was and it wasn't. I I mean, I made very clear from the beginning what I was willing to do and what I was not going to be requiring uh, be at the table. So I said, listen, I'm not going to push for things that can't get 60 votes in the Senate, like an assault weapons ban. I tried to create a, a safe space for negotiation. John Cornyn and I have had a long relationship. We've actually passed some small gun measures in the past, but we've never contemplated doing something this big. So we also needed some new people at the table. Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina has been incredibly constructive, brought a lot of new energy, And Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, who, you know, has incredibly good relationships with Republicans, is a proven deal maker. offered to be part of these talks as well. And it it was, I think, that new blood into the talks, as well as the public urgency and our willingness to be creative and compromise that allowed us to get a framework. And as we speak, we still haven't gotten that framework passed through the Senate, but we've never gotten this far before.
0: You mentioned in your answer an assault rifle ban. This bill doesn't do that. It doesn't ban the sale of high-capacity magazines. And you conceded in a tweet that this deal will not do everything to end America's gun violence epidemic. If it were up to you, or if you had 60 Democrats on your side, what else would you have liked to see in the plan that's not there?
1: I clearly think that an assault weapons ban would save a lot of lives. I also would have supported raising the age to 21 to buy assault weapons. And the data tells us that The more background checks you do, frankly, has the biggest impact. Um, So there are obviously things that I want in this package, but I really am not focused on what's not in the bill. I'm focused on what's in the bill because I know those things are going to reduce homicides and suicides. And I also know that it allows us to try to prove a theory that I've long had, that once Republicans start to vote for things that save lives, that are supported by 90 percent of their voters back home, they will find out that, in fact, the sky doesn't fall politically if you vote for gun law changes as a Republican. The opposite happens. You get a lot more support from unlikely places. I think that will allow us to do more things in the future. So I look at the possibilities here, the possibilities of lives saved and the possibilities of future action. I'm not spending my time right now focused just on what we couldn't get done. And so you're not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good.
0: Do you think that's something that Democrats have been guilty of in the past? Have they failed to introduce gun reform because it's not sweeping or because they thought they would suffer electoral consequences?
1: Well, I think we've often been guilty as Democrats of not being willing to work for compromise. I just know that that's where the people I represent are, people in Connecticut. I mean, they want universal background checks, but I don't think I ran into a single person in Connecticut over the past three weeks that told me, don't compromise until you get everything that you want. People out there in the public, apolitical people, non-political people, they want us to get something done.
0: And so as you sat down today, before we started recording, you said you were in the process of writing the legislation. Obviously, what you have now is a framework. The agreement still faces an uphill climb before it becomes law. How confident are you in the support of your Republican colleagues? Do you worry that there's a cynical view that they may just be supporting this to get January 6th out of the headlines? And that when there's an actual bill, they'll find a reason to withdraw their support. Do you worry about
1: that happening? I feel pretty confident about the the 10 senators that we announced on the Republican side. I'm glad that since then, Senator McConnell has expressed that he's willing to support this legislation. That's a very important signal, uh, the Republican leader expressing his support for our bill. Obviously, I know everything can fall apart. I know that there's reasons why Congress has not passed anything like this in 28 years, but I still remain confident that we can get this to the finish line.
0: I'm trying to gauge that level of confidence. If you had to put a percentage on it, what would you give on something passing? And when it does pass, what happens then? How quickly do
1: you think we'll see the next step? I wouldn't put a number on it. You know, I've said throughout this process that I'm prepared to fail, right? Because I have failed so many times before. I've been part of so many sets of negotiations that didn't go anywhere. But I made the decision after Sunday to prepare for success. I've made the decision now to believe that this is going to happen and to order all of my actions in a direction that lands this as a piece of legislation on the president's desk. So I'm not going to tell you I'm 100% certain that this is going to get done. I'm just going to tell you that I, I now think that we have turned the corner and that we have a much greater chance of getting this done than failing. And so not 100%, but greater than 50%. Greater than 50%. Do you worry
0: that when this passes, if this passes, when this passes, that Republicans will see this bill as basically gun reform done and will have to wait another 30 years for more reform like universal background checks or an assault weapons ban?
1: I just don't think that that's how change movements work in this country. You know, I just know that success normally begets success. The 1963 Civil Rights Act led to the 1964 Voting Rights Act. The ability of Gay parents to adopt children eventually led to marriage equality. So there's just no evidence in American political history to suggest that once you achieve your first victory in a change movement, you stop there. That's just not how it works. So there are a lot
0: of guns in America. There are more guns than people, and ownership is increasing. Most people say they have it for personal protection. People in favor of looser gun policy often cite the Second Amendment in their defense, and your agreement really strikes a balance between appealing to gun control advocates, but also to those who want to preserve the Second Amendment. How did you walk that line as you crafted this agreement with your colleagues?
1: Well, I, you know, I once wrote a book on the topic of violence in America, and I spent a while walking through the history of the Second Amendment. I've come to believe that there, there is a constitutional right, likely much more rooted in common law than in simply the text of the Second Amendment, to private gun ownership— And so I don't think we can do anything in legislation that broadly compromises an individual's ability to buy a gun for protection or to hunt or to shoot for sport. And so we really concentrated in this bill on making sure that only the right people have access to weapons. And so that's why we said if you beat up your girlfriend and you've been convicted of abuse, you lose your right to have a firearm. If you are threatening a mass shooting, then we should have a law in place that allows law enforcement to temporarily take your guns away. So we've really focused on making sure that the right people have access to firearms. And by doing that, I think we build a big coalition and make a big difference, actually press downward on the trajectory of gun violence in this country.
0: If you don't mind my asking, Senator, do you yourself own a gun?
1: I don't. I'm not somebody who feels like I need a gun to protect myself. I'm I'm not a a hunter. Listen, I'm very appreciative uh, of the fact that a lot of other people have a much deeper personal and cultural connection to firearms. And um, nothing we're doing in this bill will fundamentally change that. Have you ever had a conversation with, for lack of a better word, a Second Amendment ideologue,
0: someone who claimed to be opposed to any gun control measures? And change their mind, and if so, what was that conversation like? What do you think convinces someone who opposes gun control measures
1: reflexively to back some of them? Oh, I mean, I talk to Second Amendment supporters and NRA members all the time. I think there's this mythology out there about what people like me support. I mean, the NRA and other groups have told their members that I support gun confiscation that I want to take away people's guns. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not what I support. I just support making sure that only the right people have access to weapons. And I don't believe that these military-style weapons should be sold any longer. And so often when I get into a conversation with, you know, somebody who sees themselves as antagonistic to me on the issue of guns, I try to get the conversation to background checks. I try to talk about whether or not you believe that every gun sold should come with a background check. And almost universally, that person says, well, yeah, of course, I support that. I did a background check. It was only three minutes, five minutes long. We should do that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you trying to take away my guns. Once you sort of find that common ground, you know, the conversation can be a little different.
0: You mentioned the NRA in your previous answer, and they've so far kept quiet. They've said they'll make their position known when the full text of the bill is available. But I just wonder, the NRA is a very convenient boogeyman, but more than 40% of American households own at least one gun. To what extent do you think gun control advocates are fighting the NRA and the gun lobby? And to what extent are you just swimming upstream against a really deeply
1: embedded American gun culture? But remember, gun owners support the changes that we're talking about. So. I think it's a real dangerous assumption to say, oh, well, lots of people in this country own guns, so they must not want restrictions on guns. In fact, Senator Cornyn went to his Republican meeting this week with polling showing that the changes in our bill are supported by 80 to 90 percent of Americans. And of course, you can't get to 80 to 90 percent public support without the vast majority of gun owners agreeing with those changes. So the things we're talking about here, red flag laws, taking guns away from domestic abusers, being a little bit more careful about how you sell guns to people under 21, those are things that are supported by gun owners and non-gun owners. But if those things
0: are so popular, if they are supported by gun owners and non-gun owners, why do you think it has taken 30 years for this just modest legislation to emerge?
1: Well, as I mentioned, because Over the last 40 years, that stamp of approval from the gun lobby has been a proxy for a broader set of conservative values that that has been really important to Republican candidates. And so the power that the gun lobby has is very unique. And I will also say that a lot of Americans you know, would say that they supported background checks, but it wouldn't be one of the issues they were really voting on when they came out to the polls. That's changing as well. As more and more parents fear for the life of their kids, they are starting to elevate the issue of guns when they come to the voting booth. So I just think over time, that 80% of America that's always supported many of these changes has begun to prioritize that when they're making decisions. And the Congress and elected officials are responding to that change in prioritization.
0: Let me end, if I may, with a slightly more personal question. I don't think there's anyone in the Senate who is as closely identified with the quest for sensible gun legislation as you are. And gun control is often framed as a hopeless, fruitless venture. But after 10 years, you're really standing on the cusp of some real reform. What does that mean to you and to the families of the victims you've been fighting for?
1: I really think about it through the prism of the survivors and the parents who have lost kids and the sisters who have lost brothers. I mean, those are the people that I think about um, when I'm doing this work, whether they be from Sandy Hook or from Hartford or New Haven. And what I think has been really gratifying is that every anti gun violence group that is made up in part of survivors and relatives of those who have been killed by gun violence are supporting this effort again, not because they think it does everything that they want or that we should do, but because they believe in progress and they think a way to honor their loved one who perished in an incident of gun violence is to show that change is possible. And if this legislation can stop one additional family from having to go through what they went through, they're willing to back it. My guess is that this is going to stop thousands of homicides and suicides, not just one or two. And uh, I'm glad to have the support of so many victims of gun violence, survivors of gun violence, and relatives of those who have been lost. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
0: And do let us know what you think. If the bill passes, what will that mean for America? You can write to us at podcasteconomist.com at or you can tweet us at The Economist. The gun reform agreement is not the only issue engulfing Congress. This week, our Lexington columnist digs into the January 6th committee hearings, the investigation into last year's Capitol Hill riot. To read that and much more from Washington and beyond, head to our website. Of course, the only way to enjoy full access to all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. So why not sign up today and take advantage of our introductory offer? Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm John Fastman, and in New York, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.